Good morning. It's good to be with you. If you're still in the foyer, go ahead and head on in. We're going to get started in here. It is a blessing and a joy to be able to be back uh, here with some of our college students, recognizing some familiar faces. So welcome back. Uh, and uh, for any of you that are new, welcome for the first time. If you're just with us this morning, uh, we do want to welcome you. We are so glad you're here. Glad you've come to worship with us this morning. We pray that you're uh, warmly welcomed by us. Uh, we love our family, and we hope that you will too. Uh, there is a uh, Connect card in the pew back just in front of you. It's a little rectangular card, about yay long. You can fill it out for us. Just a little bit of your information allows us to serve you, get to know you just a little bit, give you information you might like to have, and uh, see if we can get you uh, plugged in with the, the information uh, that you would like. Uh, also, if you're watching online, there is a little digital Connect card in the video description. You can click that. Um, and fill that out there, and then same thing, we'll just serve you and get to know you just a little bit. Uh, church, it is, it is a blessing uh, to come to remember and rehearse the gospel together. It's easy for us to live our week like the gospel doesn't matter. It honestly is, is a temptation for us as we live in this world to just cling to the things that the world has to offer instead of Christ our King. And so we're here. To recenter our hearts, to recenter our minds on the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As believers in Him, it is our greatest hope and treasure to know that Christ has died for sinners like you and me. And that He rose again from the dead. And He conquered sin in the grave. And He gave us eternal life in Him. So, Chris, I'd like to ask you to stand. We're going to open with a word of prayer, and we're going to sing together. Oh, Lord, you are great. You are high above the earth. You are holy and perfect. There is no one else like you. And so, Lord, we come before you knowing that we need you. We are totally dependent on you are all sufficient, Lord. You need nothing. And so we come to you asking that you would help us even now. As we think on you, we pray that you would center our hearts and center our lives on you and your grace. For that this time, as we remember these truths and sing these truths, hear these truths from your word, we would cling to you and you alone. Help us by your Spirit today to worship you in spirit and in truth. Through Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm <laughs> 
Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, He is our God. He is great to be praised. I'm going to take just a moment to read for us. Um, I decided kind of last minute right now, I'm going to add a couple verses to this, but um, beginning with Psalm 32, uh, verses 1 through 5, I want to read this for us. This little um, psalm is called, Blessed Are the Forgiven. And this is a part of our service where we think on our sin and our need for Him. But the reason we do that is because we must understand the full gospel. We must understand that because of our sin, we've been separated from our holy God. And the good news of Christ is only good news if we know that the bad news. We know that we've sinned against the holy God. But be encouraged, church. Psalm 32, 1, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones 
wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So church, I'd like to ask you to take a moment of silence to think on your sin, to confess that before our holy God who is willing to hear and willing to forgive. Would you pray Lord, we confess before you that we need you, that you are holy and perfect and we are not. We often desire ourselves and the things of this world above you. We confess these things to you. We ask, God, that you would forgive us. And we're thankful, O oh God, that you are willing, that we have been forgiven in Christ our Lord. Savior. He is the one and only. We praise His great name. Thank you, Lord. Christ, we pray in Come now, found every man. To my heart, to tonight, sing of mercy, never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet, sung by flaming tongues above. Praise them now, sign. Fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming Oh, 
Sorrow and dead in my sin, lost without hope, no place to begin. Love made a way to let mercy come in. When death was left, my life. It was the dear, only beauty name. My orphan heart given me. Morning grew quiet, my sleep rose to dance. When death was arrested, my life began. Oh, your grace. Washes over me. You have made me new. Now life begins with you. It's your endless love pouring. 
turns to like Satan weeps. You will you will weep and lament, but the burden will be short. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow is your home is joy. In a woman that's giving birth, she has sorrow on her hour and time. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice. No one in this world rejoice from you. Let they be glad for nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. Before the love and calm, you alone. 
Gospel of Matthew, we're told in this scene, before this scene takes place, Matthew 10, 28-29, that Jesus tells His disciples, do not fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for one penny? And yet not a single one will fall apart from the Father. Those comforting words that Jesus previously gave the disciples, He now walks out before them. Jesus is about to have His body killed. He surrenders His life, a willing sacrifice for the many. His disciples are everywhere in this scene. They themselves are struggling with understanding what's taking place. They don't quite grasp what's before them. Jesus has told them now in several different ways, in several different times, that the hour is coming. And now finally, the hour has come. which the Son of Man will lay down His life. But in this text, facing the reality of death, Jesus ministers to His disciples' hearts. He knows, just as He knew that Judas, that Judas was the betrayer, he knows of his disciples that they will soon scatter. The road of suffering is his walk to walk alone. But he'll emphasize his relationship with the Father, as we read a moment ago. What Jesus does in a moment before his trial is as the good, compassionate, loving teacher and master that he is, he ministers to their hearts and tells them, take heart. Take courage. New King James says, be of good cheer. For the hour has come. A prayer for us this morning, beloved, is that we would likewise take heart as we remember who Jesus is and who we are to Him. And if you don't know Christ, my prayer for you is that today would be your day of salvation. The day would be the day in which you come to know the joy of hope found in Christ. For when we hear this good news message, the hearts are moved to one of two areas. Either affection and hope and joy and peace. Or to coldness. Apathy. And perhaps appalling. So, let's look at three heart-building, courage given truth that God gives to His disciples as the hour has now come. Let's look first in verses 16 through 19 as we see, beloved, take heart, for Jesus knows our questions before we gather the courage to ask Him to clarify them. Jesus knows the questions that His disciples have before they can muster the courage to articulate them to Him. Jesus tells them in verse 16, in a little while, 
Y'all will see me no longer. Why? Because he's going to be fully betrayed by Judas. Inspired by Satan, who will return to betray him with a multitude of guards, Roman guards and temple guards. They'll come with lanterns searching for him. Jesus tells him, just a little while this will take place. I will be betrayed. I will be handed over. I will be crucified, beaten, and buried. That's what he tells them in a little while. But take heart. For a little while longer from that, I will raise again. So, what will their condition be? What will the season be shaping before them? What do they do with this question? Do they raise their hand and, and ask? I mean, for you, what about you? When you had a question, when you were a student, when you had a question, were you one of those students that right away raised their hand? Or were you one of those students that, I'll ask somebody else after class, it's not worth the social pain. Raise your hand if you're one of those people. Of course you're not going to do it, right? Even though some of you did it. Some of you just did this. I am that person. I wouldn't raise my hand. The disciples here don't have the courage to ask Jesus the question. They don't understand what he's saying. And it's not because they're dense. It's because the Spirit hasn't illuminated their mind for understanding yet. And Jesus speaks these things, and they have a question. What they do with the question is they don't raise their hand to ask Jesus. They look to each other. They hire each other as a consultant. And at the end, after putting their minds together to say, what is Jesus talking about? They conclude, they don't know. Now, John doesn't tell us why they won't ask the question. It's possible they don't want to ask the question because they know the hour has come that he's been speaking about, so they know he's troubled, his troubling situation, and they don't want to, if you will, kick him while he's down. These are the men that have pledged their life to him, to follow him, to serve him and his ministry. And here they are after three years, and they still don't grasp this. We're not sure. Or it could be, as the other Gospels, though John didn't tell us this, the other Gospels tell us there's been several occasions at this point in which Jesus has given a clear teaching, and their response to the teaching that Jesus gives is they're just totally confused. And Jesus says over and over again, how much longer must I be with you until you understand? And so maybe it's out of pride that they don't want to be embarrassed again for lacking understanding. Whatever the reason is, look what our compassionate teacher does. Look what our compassionate, merciful Savior does. He walks across the room. He knows the answer to the question before they ever had the courage to ask the question. Now, somebody grew up in church. There's an age-old joke. For small groups or for Sunday school, that the answer to the question is always what? Or who? Jesus. Well, I hope when that comes to mind, the next time you're in a small group, I hope you get involved this fall. Shameless plug. But I hope the next time that answer comes in, when you think the answer is always Jesus, I pray that we would remember that Jesus not only knows the answer, but Jesus knows our struggling questions before we're courageous enough to ask them. He not only knows the answer, He knows the question that is burdening your heart and your mind. And what does He do? In compassion and mercy, He addresses His disciples. He is a leader of leaders, takes the bold stance to walk across the room. He knows His disciples' limitations, and listen, He loves them. He loves them enough to speak the truth. He loves them enough, even though they lack understanding, to give them courage 
says, take heart. Take courage. Confidence. Courage. Not because the disciples are great. He doesn't tell them, the hour has come, but take courage, take heart, because you are amazing. You're great, you're smart, you're accomplished, you're successful. No, he says, take heart, because he has overcome the world. Believer, that's what we have this morning. If we wrestle with questions or uncertainties, or we're hesitant to articulate them or bring them before God, take heart. He knows your questions before you ask them. So abide and rest in Jesus. That's good news for us this morning, troubled hearts. That's good news. Second, beloved, take heart for Jesus knows our anxieties and emotions before we even express them. He knows our questions before we articulate them as He did for His disciples here as the hour had come. And likewise, He knows the emotions that will soon, like a tidal wave, overtake them. As the betrayal scene takes full stage, Jesus knows our anxieties and emotions before we even experience or express them. Look at this. Verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. Imagine somebody told that to you this morning. That would sound like a threat, wouldn't it? Imagine you're leaving out the room, and as you leave, one of our Connect team members says to you, this week, you will have lament and weeping. You'd be thinking, I need to get that person's information and report them immediately. Because they're going to do something to me. But Jesus is not going to do something to them. Jesus is going to be acting out what has been foreordained before the foundation of the world. The righteous for the unrighteous exchange will take place. And Jesus knows that when He leaves their presence physically, they will be moved to lamenting at His crucifixion. They will be moved to mourning and crying out to God, lamenting to God. In the unbelieving world, the Romans and the Pharisees, the Jewish religious, religious leaders and the crowd, they will not come alongside weeping he says, rather, you will weep in a short amount of time. You will weep. You will lament. And the world will be moved to rejoicing. The same event that takes place will bring the believers to mourning and lamenting. And the unbelieving world will be moved to rejoicing. A death is the enemy. Death is the enemy. I got an amen right here. Death is the enemy. And Jesus knows very well what will take place. We know that whether young or old, death is not our friend, has been said. And what's common, even for somebody you're not close to, we see a tragedy, we see people mourning, and we're moved to mourn with them. And Jesus tells His disciples, these men that have walked with Him and eaten with Him and ministered with Him and seen Him work miracles, He tells them, the hour has now come in which I will be crucified. You'll no longer see me. You will be moved to mourning, and the world will be moved to rejoicing. The world at Jesus' crucifixion will not throw a celebration of life for Him, but they will throw a celebration of death for what He's done. 
the line has become incredibly clear. We are believers who have hope in Christ, or we are rebels, idolaters at heart. And it was exposed by the gospel. Who do you believe Jesus is? What has Jesus done? The unbelieving world has a choice of what, how they will respond. But he tells them good news. So if you stop there, you can be a really sad story. He says, in a little while longer, in a little while, you're going to be moved to lamenting because you're not going to see me. But a little while longer, and you're going to be moved to rejoicing. So what's the response for the unbelieving world? What's the response for the, the God of this world? The devil. What's their response? They'll be moved to rejoicing at Christ's death, and they'll be moved to mourning and lamenting. Why? Because Jesus has defeated death. He will raise again from the grave. That's what gives them hope and good news. Not because they're great, but because Christ is truly who He said He is. Jesus is worthy of our hope and life. Isn't that good news? It's morning. Worth our life. What a roller coaster of emotions. In a little while, you're going to mourn. And then a little while after that, you're going to rejoice. He's talking about His death and burial and resurrection. What a roller coaster. And what example does Jesus use? Jesus single his entire life. He never married. He never has children. And Jesus uses the most perfect example imaginable. Look what he says. This is a text Sarah and I we came across and remembered and memorized for the birth of our first child and ingrained into my mind from the trauma after that. Watching that? No. It was without question one of the most heroic, amazing things I've ever seen in my life. Without question, beautiful, powerful, amazing. The drama, the adrenaline built in the moment of childbirth and labor. And Jesus quotes, and he says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow for her hour has come. But she has delivered. She no longer remembers her anguish for a human being has been born into the world. Joy. From anguish to joy, in that moment, as many of you have graciously been able to experience or be in the room for, a moment of anxiety and drama, in just a moment, peace and joy and hope for new life has been brought into the world. Everything is Tells his disciples, he captures the image so perfect of what his resurrection will ensure for them. The joy and hope that is theirs in him for what he has done. So he tells them, Take heart, beloved. Take heart. New life will be born into the world. And we experience that as brothers and sisters, as we come to Christ. As unbelievers come to Christ, we see new life and we see the Lord working in their life and we rejoice. But only the gospel can do. We take part for what he has done. Now, we know the history. I think there's some uncertainty, but I do wonder at this point. We know for sure that Lazarus died a second time. We know that the Pharisees and Caiaphas wanted him dead because he was such an effective witness. Remember Lazarus? going from literally dead to Jesus raising him up to life. And 
the Pharisees, the religious teachers, wanted to kill Lazarus because he was such an effective witness for Jesus. We don't know if Lazarus has already been put to death a second time, but we can have good reason to say, well, he, he would have died a second time, even if it was decades later. Jesus in this way that it's not a further roller coaster of you'll be moved disciples from lamenting to rejoicing to lamenting again. No, no, no. You will be moved from lamenting to rejoicing. Even though Lazarus will die a second time, Jesus will not. He will defeat the grave once and for all. And all who are hidden in Christ, to Jesus, He is the first fruit of the resurrection of eternal life. He professes likewise in our baptism. That as we are hidden in Christ by faith in His death and life and resurrection, so too we know one day our bodies that will be corrupted, these perishable bodies of ours that will not inherit the imperishable. One day after we die, at the King's right time, He will raise us to newness of life, and bodily we will reign with Him and worship Him for eternity. That's good news. For though Lazarus would die a second time, not our King, not your Savior, Take heart, beloved, for He has overcome the world. One scene, crucifixion, causing two different emotions. When you think about the death of Jesus, let me ask you, as though we were meeting together individually, right now, when you think about the life, the sinless life, the death of Jesus and His resurrection, does that move you to rejoicing and hope? And joy? Does it move you at all? Are you apathetic and cold and distant, uninterested in that message? This is a message you see through history. The working of God takes place. The people of God are moved to rejoicing. What causes Israel to rejoice leads to the Canaanites and the Egyptians mourning. And what leads the believer to rejoice leads the unbeliever who has not yet repented and trusted in Christ, it leads them to lamenting. Now, I'll read this for us. Actually, flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 through 16. For in this, Paul paints the picture of the aroma of Christ. The aroma of Christ does one of two things. It's the same smell. It moves the believer to joy. To move the unbeliever to a reminder of their defeat. Second Corinthians chapter two, verse twelve through sixteen. If you're in the Quebec Bible, that's page nine sixty-five. I'll start reading in verse twelve, but we'll really pick it up in verse fourteen. Prepare to read this. The Romans had a practice. As Rome expanded, they would conquer a people. And as they conquered a people, they would bring various livestock and men that they had not killed. They would bring them back to be slaves. Words of some say a third of the Roman Empire were those who were slaves. And as they were paraded back after the victory, they would go through the streets of Rome. And they would set up these large Fragrance offerings, fragrance smells. So you can imagine how stinky and smelly and, and bloody and gross to have these people defeated and then to parade them through the streets. How 
stinky that would be, the animals that they would bring back through, just the smells of the street of how bad that would smell. So when they would have these parades of victory, they would set up these fragrant smells. And as a Roman citizen that day, who would smell that smell, you would be moved to joy because you had been victorious. We've been victorious again. And you'd be moved to rejoicing and celebration. But for the captives, with chains on that would go through the streets, that same smell was to you the smell of defeat. Listen to what Paul tells the church in Corinth. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 through 16. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and I went on to Macedonia. Verse 14. But thanks be to God who, in Christ, always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us, He spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we, believers, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. So the, the smell of Paul who's proclaiming the Gospel and other believers secondhand that are proclaiming the Gospel wherever they are, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. But that same smell to an unbelieving world, look what he says, and among those who are perishing, some believers, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. To the believer, no smell and no message of the Gospel will fill you with hope and joy. The message of Christ crucified, our hope of glory. And to the unbeliever, no message will be more offensive than salvation in Christ alone. To all who believe, they have eternal life. To all who not, do not believe, they will be damned already. Good news. How does that message smell to you? And if it leads you to hope this morning, your heart should be lifted to good cheer despite your season. This is good news. Third, 25 through 33. Beloved, take heart. For Jesus gives true peace to His beloved. True peace. What about doubts or what about tribulation? True peace. Despite our seasons of doubt and tribulation. True peace. Peace beyond understanding. Peace with God. Adoption in Christ. The work of Christ on the cross did not ensure for us a ceasefire until hostility came again or until we sinned again. The work of Christ brings us peace with God. A relational peace that is so great that Christ is our mediator. Peace in which we have fellowship with the fullness of the crying God. That's good news. Jesus knows what He's about to do, and He knows what He's about to do, what it will indeed accomplish. He knows who it will please. It will perfectly please the Father as He continues and finishes the work that the Father had given Him to do. He knows what will take place. But in this, He also knows what the disciples will do. That's the good news. Now, 
How do the disciples respond to this clear teaching? Look with me down in the text. Look at down in verse 29. Verse 29. And the prime to verse 29 is a reminder that Jesus now unpacks it clearly for them. So remember, they had the question they couldn't figure out. They talked to each other. They couldn't solve the problem. Jesus answers it. And then he answers it very, very plainly for them. Look what they respond with. As he describes, the Father himself loves you because you love me and I believe that I came from God. Now look down to verse 29. He says it clearly. Where he's from, he's from the Father. He sent one of God. He will return to the Father. He's coming to the world. Verse 29. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly. Now not using figurative speech. Now we know that you are, you know all things. Now, now, now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. He said, we get it now, Jesus. We finally get it. Oh, Maybe if you weren't speaking so figuratively earlier, we'd have got it earlier, okay? But we get it. We're with you. Not only are we with you, Jesus, right here, we're with you. With the tribulation that you're about to face, we're there. We believe. You're from the Father. You're the Christ. And we're not going to see you in a little bit, but we're going to be moved to rejoice. We understand now. We're going to be with you the whole time. And how did Jesus respond? Did Jesus say, oh, thank goodness. Finally. You're now moved to such faith, you're going to be with me the whole time. Is that what Jesus says? No, Jesus says, now you believe? He rephrases it back to them in a question. Do you now believe? Jesus, just as He knew the hearts of man perfectly, as the eternal God man, so too He knows the response of His disciples. And though the Spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. He knows that they claim to know, but He also knows that they will scatter. He knows that they will be walking alone, that He will be walking alone. Look at verse 32. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. They just made this proclamation of steadfastness to Jesus. And Jesus says, you're going to scatter each to your own home. I love the confidence. But I alone will bear this. You will be hiding in your home. As you see in a little bit, as a reminder, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Christ's confidence is not in the performance of the disciples. Jesus knows who He is and why He had come. And the covenant that will be made by His blood is not based upon the faithfulness of His disciples or the faithfulness of us. But it is by the assured work of Christ on the cross. This grant covenant that God, covenant that God grants us eternal life to all who believe. Not who work, but, but believe. And in believing, God works the miracle. He moves the message of the gospel from the head to the heart. 
as some have said, the longest 18 inches known to man. You know this. Many of you have been so burdened, you've been praying for family members and friends and neighbors that have come to know Christ. You proclaim this good news of hope in Jesus. It's never taken root. It must be a working of God, of being born from above. But we take hope, because if it was based upon us, we would be like the disciples who scattered. It would never take root and take heart, for the Lord gives a new heart. A new life. All who believe in Christ will believe. Take heart. And Jesus ministers to his disciples here before they ever doubt him. He gives them this comforting word to say, hey, I'm not alone. I'm in union with the Father. He ministers to his disciples before they even scatter. What a, what a loving Savior we serve. What a good God. Before they ever scatter and then have survivor's guilt, if you will, of what took place as they abandoned the Savior, Jesus encourages them. Take heart, for I have overcome the world. Father has not left me. You will leave me. good for me that I go away. For soon you'll be moved to rejoicing as I defeat the grave. And it is good for me to go away. For soon I and the Father will send you the Spirit. And He will guide you to proclaim this message, the convictor of the world and of righteousness. And you will scatter, but not to your homes. You will scatter into the nations to proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus. So believer, take heart in our life functionally culture in the world will lament 2020. There is no accident that God has placed us in these Texas for this season. And we've grown the realities of 2020 and some of the adversity that it's faced. Many in our own congregation and certainly many that you know as loved ones and neighbors and co-workers. But we don't lament as the world laments. As the world laments and experiences the natural groaning of life built not upon the foundation of Christ and His Word, we minister also. We weep with them as they weep, but we point them to hope in Jesus Christ alone. And if they will but believe, they too can take heart, for He has overcome the world. But how tragic it has to be to go through all the uncertainty of this life on your own. How fearful it must be to go through this world of uncertainty and groaning without the Savior following a teacher or a master that is not Christ. The tragedy. Come to Christ and have life. And believer, you can be of good cheer. You can take courage because of what Christ has done. The pen we proclaim. The pen we rejoice in. Amen? Amen means that's the truth. Amen? Next step. Of course, in all these things, we pray that God would fill us with courage. So Jesus told his disciples the truth. Costly troubles awaited them. 
one of the joys of being a multi-generational congregation is that we have a lot of people from a lot of different seasons of life who have experienced a lot of different trials. You name it. It's here in this room. And in Christ, believer, you have endured trials. You have maintained hope. You persevered by clinging on to Christ. And hardship not hardened against Christ, but rather clinging stronger to Christ as He holds fast to you. So would you share with a friend now, abiding in Jesus, would you just take a moment and steady your mind and think, Lord, who is a believer? Who is an unbeliever? That I can share the testimony of how, how, how the hope of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done has steadied me through trials in my life. Would you pray about that? And look for an opportunity to share this week. Pray for courage to take it. I don't know about you, but I find the more I pray for somebody, the more I'm moved to actually take courage to want to give the gospel message or a message of hope or just offer, how can I pray with you? And so would you pray that the Lord would bring you a believer upon your heart that you can encourage to take part? Likewise, would you pray for boldness that, that God would bring an unbeliever into your life that you can love and serve and care for and look and point to the hope that you have in Christ? And finally, Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you, beloved, with all joy and peace and believing that by the power of the Holy Spirit you would be moved to hope and hope abounding. Believer, Jesus has overcome the world. As a believer, is there an area in your life that you find yourself shielding from God? Confess that to Him. Right now. Abide in Him and rejoice in the victory that is yours in Christ. The song that we're about to sing in just a moment together as a church family is one in which we truly believe that in all my sorrows, in all my victories, in all my comfort, in all my riches, Jesus is better. That's the cry of a believer. That's why what Jesus told His disciples in Matthew 10, not fear the one who can destroy only the body, but destroy the one. Fear the take fear of the one who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. But his comfort is what in the knowing and the intimacy of the Father. And so, as a church family, we sing to begin our time of response. It goes all through the entire week. The time of response is in exactly this message. No other end. Jesus is there. And so we this to minister one to another. And if you don't know Christ, make today the day of your salvation. Profess your faith and trust in Him. Let us disciple you and walk with you in the goodness of the riches you have in Christ. Church family, would you stand with me as we minister the Word one to another in Christ?
Father, it is a joy to believe that Jesus is better than anything else this world has to offer. Thank you, Lord, for your grace that you've shown us, for giving us the faith that we need to believe in you. And we ask that you would help us to live as we walk out of these doors in a moment, to live our life to reflect what we just think. We would not cling to what the world offers, but that we would cling solely to Christ because all we have is Him and all we need is in Him. So God, would you help us by your Spirit to walk in obedience, to walk in faith. We love you, Lord. Thank you for hearing our prayer. For Christ we pray.
Make sure to check the bulletin for all the specifics on that as well. If you have an interest in any of these areas too, feel free to talk to Cynthia, our connect director, after service. She can help you get more information about that. Last thing, no, that's a lot. Last thing, today when you leave, parents, we want to give you a book that we've been using for our summer devotional this summer. Uh, we hope that this has been a fruitful time of you getting to, to disciple and raise up your kids, and this is what's true. But right? we want to help come alongside you as you continue that in the new rhythms of school. So, when you leave out of these front two doors, there is a book that up there called Big Truths for Little Hearts. We want to give you this book, so parents, make sure that you grab that, okay? That's a lot, so remember, check week to week the bulletin online for all the specifics of that. And I saw a hot green trick, if you would stand with me to end in the congregation prayer. Father, you are Lord Jesus, all good gifts. We love you with grace. Thank you.